0: Hi, Allison. Hello to those of you listening. This, of course, is Spotlight on France. It's the podcast that looks at France
1: beyond the baguette. So, Allison, you went south this week to Montpellier. I did. What were you doing there? I went to a village outside the city of Montpellier. It's in the Languedoc-Roussillon region. That's one of France's largest wine producing regions. I'm
0: getting where you're going here. You went to go have some wine, didn't you? I did, I did.
1: I I would have loved to. Actually, that wasn't altogether the point. Um, Grape picking is in full swing. That is the harvest. It's the harvest time. And Languedoc-Roussillon has some good quality, reasonably priced wines. But the question is, for how long? Because the region's wine growers really are finding themselves on the front line of climate change. Right, because I remember in the south uh, this summer, there
0: were some really, really hot temperatures. The heat wave, it was like 46, 47 degrees in June, right? Yeah,
1: record high mm. temperatures. It's caused havoc in the vineyards, and these wine growers are having to cope, not just with uh, high temperatures, but also prolonged drought and really weird weather uh, conditions. Hailstones, for example, in the month of May, Ooh. frost. Oh, yeah, that is kind of odd, actually. It yeah. is.
0: And it and it knocks everything out of whack. I yeah. mean, but farmers have always had to deal with this kind of thing, Predictable weather, unpredictable things, right? Yeah, part, part of the job.
1: In a way, par for the course. But this extreme weather that we're seeing used to be the exception. And now it would seem to be becoming far more regular. And so basically these very, very high temperatures and coupled with the drought is having a big impact on the wine itself and on the yield. And if wine growers want to stay in business then they're just going to have to find ways of adapting to the challenges of climate change and that's what eight wine growers are doing in the village of Murvielle-les-Montpellier, it's just a a village of about 2,000 inhabitants west of Montpellier. They've all lost large parts of their crops this year due to the heat and the ongoing drought but with the help of INRA which is France's public research body into agricultural sciences they are together trying to manage this hotter, drier, and unpredictable future. Hello. Hi, there. Hi Robin. Hi. Nice How to, to you? meet you. How Thank you? you so much. I do appreciate That's it. All right, I know no you're problem. busy man. That's right. Hello. All right. Wine growers Robin and Liz Williamson don't have much time for chit chat. Yesterday they were picking grapes. Today they're hard at work in their cellars, emptying three tanks of Syrah grapes from one tank to another leaving behind what's known as the mar, the skins, bulk and pips. All of that then goes into an old-fashioned basket press. Liz, in gumboots and shorts, cleans the emptied vats with a hose. She's been here since seven this morning. The Williamson's began wine growing here in Mirviel 16 years ago. They farm 14 hectares and make between 30 and 40,000 bottles a year. They expected this year would be the same.
2: This year started off really nicely, Uh, had a nice uh, nice lot of flowering and we thought, uh, you know, the tank's going to be very full and then gradually towards the end of June things got hotter. The last week of June, I think on the Sunday, we started at normal sort of summertime temperatures, about 30, 34 degrees. And then on the Friday the 28th of June we hit 46 degrees, pretty eye-melting stuff. The following morning, I went out to to go and get some bread, as as most French people do. And uh, driving past the vines, I saw that they'd shriveled, and I thought, this is a bit odd. Uh, I wonder what was going on, because sometimes Syrah, in cases of extreme heat, the leaves will start to shrivel, but the the grapes will be fine. And then I came back, and I saw that it was the bunches that had gone as well.
1: In just two days, they lost at least 50% of their yield. The Williamson's export to several European countries and to the U.S., Losing that business would have been dire. Thankfully, the regional authorities have allowed wine growers affected by the heat to buy grapes from other producers.
2: So we've bought in about 4,000 litres of juice or grapes, and so that will help us get up to 80% of what we produce on an average year. Of course, uh, a bit of a hit on our cash flow, but uh, in the long term we have to do it.
1: On another wine estate in Mirviel, the grape picking continues for wine grower Joël Anterieux. Like the Williamson's, he and his wife make organic wine and prefer to grape pick by hand. But this year, they're using a machine. It allows them to harvest the grapes quickly as they continue to ripen very fast in the heat, but also to save money. That's a real issue because the recent heat wave has cut their yields by half as well.
3: The machine will do you a hectare in two hours, whereas by hand you'd need 15 people at 10 euros an hour for eight hours. That's a bit more than 800 euros. The machine costs you 350 euros you do the maths. Voilà, le
2: est vite fait.
1: Joël Anterieu is a local boy. He inherited two hectares of vines from his great-grandfather 16 years ago and built up the business. Today, he has 21 hectares. His wines have won prizes in organic wine fairs, but he's worried about the future.
3: In 2003, this kind of weather was the exception. But since 2017, climate change is going faster. It feels like every year there's extreme weather. We've got five times as much land as my great-grandfather had, and we're producing the same amount he did. I'm not sure I still have faith in what I'm doing. It's not easy working for nothing.
1: Here in the village of Miravielle the ground is hard and dry. The grass looks like straw and cracks underfoot as you walk. They've had no more than a few millimetres of rain this year. But the hotter temperatures and the drought hasn't affected just yield, it's impacting on the wine itself.
3: Climate change has a very strong impact on vine and wine. For instance, uh, the alcohol content is uh, increasing, perhaps an average containing more than 14 degree of alcohol
1: that's Jean-Marc Touzat, an economist working on INRA's climate change and wine industry program
3: also the acidity is beginning to decrease and you know acidity in the wine is a very important component it gives you freshness so the the winemakers are willing to work hard in order to maintain this equilibrium between acidity alcohol and aromatic profile
1: Toussaint has lived here in Murville for 20 years and he knows the wine growers well, so he's in a good position to help them adapt. While down on the plains they can irrigate, that's not much of an option up here on the hillside. Bringing water up from the aqueduct would be very expensive. So the wine growers have to find other solutions.
3: The solutions are to sell their wines with high prices. It means high quality, so they are really working on high quality. The other solution is to uh, maintain or restore the soils, the fertility of the soils, to maintain the water in the soils, to find new new varieties of grapes, more resistant to dryness, as many of them say, to uh, increase the contents in organic matter.
1: The soil in Mirvielle is poor. Régis Sudre, another local wine grower, is banking on trying to improve it. 50% of his crop has been affected by this summer's heat
0: wave. I've
3: made the decision, if I can afford it, to bring in huge quantities of organic matter to nourish the soil, increase the life in the soil and make it more robust. That way you buffer the effects of climate change. Organic matter can be really helpful in keeping humidity in the soil. You use a mixture of wood, sticks and leaves and then nature does the rest. The fungus, bacteria and worms return. You create a virtuous circle that brings carbon back to the soil.
1: Robin Williamson is also looking to make the soil more fertile so that early on the vines grow a lot of leaves and that will protect the grapes. But above all, he's experimenting with different, more robust varieties of grape. He's already planted a San Giovese from Italy as an experiment and found that it fared well during these scorching temperatures in late June. Now he's looking to introduce two Greek varieties, a red grape called liatico and a white grape, Ascirtico.
2: The advantage of those varieties is they don't need much water. That's really what we're looking at, is varieties which will keep their acidity, which is certainly what acertico does and also Yitiko. I think the only issue could be with the French public who are just trying to get them to, to pronounce the names of the vines. <laughs> they make fantastic wines, but uh, they're certainly not very easy to pronounce. But maybe also that's a, a niche that we can find. Um, we're from outside the area, so we don't sort of think, well, hang on a minute, we have to stick with the traditional varieties. I don't have a problem bringing things from outside. I think we can still make fantastic wines down here. And if it means we have to adapt, I think uh, we wouldn't be the first people on the planet to do so.
1: Williamson is upbeat about the future, innovating and learning lessons from every setback.
2: We're sticking it out. I mean, we're here for the long term, You're definitely. I, I think if it was too easy, everyone would do it. Uh, I think uh, everybody knows that making wine is, is a tough job. And it's made us think, which is, which is a good thing. And I think that the Languedoc will probably once again be one of the places where the adaption to climate change is going to happen the first. And so we're actually at the forefront of it down here.
0: So, Alison, it does sound like these wine growers are ready to adapt. But you've got to wonder, like, that uh, the one wine grower there, Robin Williamson, he's talking about Italian grapes and Greek grapes and... wine is probably going to taste a bit different, no? Are consumers
1: putting up with it? Well, this is a a legitimate question, isn't it? There's no point producing wine if no one wants to buy it. So if wines are going to be changing, then yes, what will the market be for these kind of wines? That's something that INRA is looking into. It's conducting research precisely into this question. And I asked Nathalie Ola, who is head of the Climate Change and Wine Industry Programme, she's based in Bordeaux, so I asked her about this commercial side of things.
4: So there were some very important, uh, what we call uh, experimental economy work where we have been working with panel of uh, tasters consumers in order they decide which kind of wine they would accept and pay for in the future what was the feedback are the public willing to accept that the wine actually might change in a first taste this panel of consumers accepted quite well more alcoholic and more uh, complex full-bodied wines but when they have to taste it a second time, a few days later, in fact, they get bored. It was too much alcohol. So it means that probably people won't buy it again. Could we expect in the future, Nathalie Ola, to have wines
1: coming from Pas-de-Calais, coming from wider areas around Brittany, in other words, from the north of France, from Les Ardennes?
4: Will that ultimately be the case? There are some already, already some vineyards, for example, in Brittany, and Most probably, there will be some vineyards everywhere. There were some vineyards everywhere before the phylloxera crisis. They have been uprooted. But I think, why not? Maybe it won't be um, in a so organized way as today in Bordeaux, in Burgundy, and so on. But some experiments uh, with small vineyards, I think it will be possible.
0: So Alison, she sounds pretty upbeat there about making wine in the north of France. I mean, we've heard of wine potentially being made in the UK and Scotland. Could we you know, be drinking Scandinavian wines in the future if, if the temperatures continue to go up?
1: It's an idea that has a certain buzz to it. But realistically, as Jean-Marc Touzard from INRA told me, you don't just set up shop and start making wine from one day to another. It's a whole, as they say, savoir faire, and then you have the particular soil. It, so it's not the kind of thing that you do overnight and also the idea of climate change it's not just heat it's not just temperatures it's climate instability and that is something that's going to affect the whole world it's not just the the south of france so inra is convinced that really the solution is adapting the current savoir faire to deal with that instability providing of course that climate change is stabilized and that the cop 21 targets about keeping global warming under 2.5 are indeed reached by 2050 and we'll see if that actually happens
0: been talking about wine, and wine you can never have wine without some food and of course France does have this love affair with everything having to do with food
1: and the terroir. Yeah, wine cheese of course, France is home to more than a thousand different types of cheese, some people have actually said 1,600, but you know, let's be modest uh, we still have plenty of real butchers here in France, we have regular farmers markets, sometimes twice a week in, in towns across the country people still tend to sit down and have lunch together. but, but it turns out, Allison. you're, you know, we're waxing poetic about food, mm.
0: but it turns out that the French also love fast food. There are 32,000 fast food outlets in France, and it represents 60% of all French restaurants Don't fast food. Me. It's a surprising statistic when I saw that. Um, and a large percent of these fast food outlets are...
3: Grimace, here's some happy news about McDonald's Happy Meal.
0: McDonald's. There are nearly 1,500 restaurants. France is the chain's biggest market after the US. In fact, the restaurant with the biggest turnover in the world is here in Paris, on the Champs-Elysées. Uh-huh. Um, and, and this week, McDonald's is marking its 40th anniversary here in France.
1: McDo. I've never even set foot in one in France, by
0: the way. <laughs> Well, the first one opened officially on September 17th, 1979 in a shopping mall in Strasbourg. Famous for sauerkraut, of right, course. That's right. fermented cabbage. In eastern France. Uh, you know, they're probably serving more hamburgers. But that's the chain's official history. There were actually several McDonald's restaurants opened before then by a French businessman. And he secured the franchise, but the relationship with the company turned sour. And if you want, it's kind of the story of a profound underestimation of the French desire for fast food. So the story goes that this businessman, Raymond Day got McDonald's to sign a contract in 1971, granting him the right to open 150 restaurants and run them for 30 years at quite advantageous financial conditions. I think he had to pay the company, you know, one or 2% of of his turnover as opposed to normally it'd be 20%. So it's a good deal.
1: At the time, uh, McDonald's didn't believe that France would be much of a market. Yeah, because it believed that, you know, the the land of gastronomy would never take to hamburgers, which basically you got to eat with your fingers. Yeah, and standing up. But of course, How uncouth.
0: they were wrong. <laughs> Diane opened the first McDonald's in 1972 in Créteil outside of Paris, then a dozen others, and they were drawing in the crowds and the money. So McDonald's mm, was paying attention and they realized the mistake of having signed off that contract. Losing all that money. Indeed. So they offered to buy out the restaurants, but Diane refused. So, what did they do? They went on the warpath, they accused him of not meeting their hygiene standards, there was a court case, and Diane lost. So what did the guy do? Well, he had to abandon the McDonald's brand. He renamed his restaurants O'Kitch. After Kitchen. I guess so, yeah, it didn't really work very well and he ended up selling them off a few years later to Quick. That's the Belgian fast food chain that's also all over France today. Um, And it was, of course, during that court battle that the company opened their first official
1: restaurant in Strasbourg in 1979. France has a love-hate relationship, doesn't it, with McDo. On the one hand, you know, it accuses it of exporting junk food to, you know, a a country which likes to eat well and also to contribute to making people overweight. Yeah, so Um, they, you know, they love it and hate it. And it's also really stood as a symbol of American economic and
0: cultural hegemony or colonialism. Remember José Beauvais? He was the farmer and the anti-globalism activist who trashed a McDonald's in Aveyron in
1: 1999. And he got a lot
0: of support for that. demolished the whole thing Um, and it became the symbol of sort of, we're standing our own and we're going to serve Roquefort cheese instead of American (laughs) hamburgers. Roquefort burgers. Indeed, yeah, but the restaurant does remain and it is still quite popular, um, adapting to French tastes, serving croissants for breakfast and of course, wine on the menu, so.
1: Happy birthday, McDo. What's coming to McDonald's? It's our happy birthday, Happy Meal, 15 of your
0: favorite characters, one with each Happy Meal you buy. They connect to become a birthday train. So let's talk about something that we might not think very much about, but many of us actually do. That's taking care of people. Caregivers. Those are people who, for example, help out a spouse who has a chronic illness, or a handicapped child, or an elderly parent. By some estimates, here in France, there are at least 11 million people doing that. 11 million caregivers. That's 15% of the population. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, and they go largely unnoticed, uh, partly because no one ever really talks about this. It's unpaid work, and it often just feels like, you know, it's just what you do.
1: Yeah, but it makes sense, doesn't it? You take care of the person you love when they're in difficulty. Of course, yeah, but it is a lot of work, and
0: it's work that often falls to women. They are already taking care of children, they are forced to take time off work and and spend hours and days thinking about others and and not themselves. Now the French government is considering a proposal to provide paid time off for these caregivers. Since 2017 you can take a short amount of unpaid time off, but of course few people do that. It is unpaid after all. Yeah, Um, They don't think of themselves of course as needing the time off, and their doctors, employers, teachers, no one really thinks about them. Hélène Rossino wants that to change. She's a public health doctor. She's just published a book called Aidants, Ces Invisibles, which you could translate as Those Invisible Caregivers. The book is full of stories of people she's met telling stories of taking care of others. She calls caregivers the invisible backbone of the French healthcare system, a system that she says works well to treat patients, but not so well when it comes to helping those around the patients
5: there are so many things that people can ask for they're immediately lost and we're very bad at that we're very good in medicine we're very good in at innovation but we're very bad at guiding people when they go out of the hospital and helping them to get what they need like in terms of subsidies in terms of support and then just in terms of figuring exactly. out what to do exactly people are just left on their own one of the cases uh, i'm talking about in my book really shocked me. It was a wife coming to the hospital every day at lunch to see her husband hospitalized and one day the nurse said, Okay, it's going back home today and she was freaking out a bit, like, what do you mean he's coming home today? And she was Yeah, it's going to be taken care of at home. Uh, we're gonna bring all the stuff he needs and well she had to ask, you know, her boss immediately for vacation that day and two hours later something like that uh, the patient was back with a big medical bed in a very small apartment so so no no warning no preparation ahead of
6: time and that's typical
5: uh, well i thought it would be an exception because it really was shocking to me but in fact it was not i heard that story at least three or four times and i realized that it happens because healthcare professionals don't think about caregivers, they think about the patient. And that patient was very well taken care of, but they did not even think about the fact that, oh, there is a wife and she lives with the patient. Maybe we should tell her the patient is going home. I'm not even saying that we should ask for a consent. Before even thinking about consent, we should even think that she exists. So one of the things in your book you say is you call caregivers the invisible spine of the French health system. Yes. our politicians today are pushing you know ambulatory care or hospital home basically people going back home to be treated and they are willing to be treated there but that means people have to take care of them on a daily basis nobody would be able to be taken care of at home without a spouse without children or anything we're in a
6: system a french system where there is a a decent healthcare system, there's resources for help, there's retirement homes, there's nursing homes. Why then is the burden falling so much on family members?
5: Well, I think the system might be good, but patients are still gonna leave, you know, with their loved ones, you can't have a complete healthcare team at home 24 seven, you would be really in a hospital. So at some point, when the healthcare professionals are not there, Well, the caregivers are the only one with the patients. What was your personal interest in this? I mean, do you have experience being a caregiver yourself? Uh, No, I don't. I should have because, well, my mom took care of her own mom, but I was a bit too young and I have to say I was afraid. What was scary? Well, it was scary to see my grandma hurt and to see my mom hurt too because she was taking care of her. I have an experience as a doctor And I have an experience as a patient because I have like a chronic disease called spondylitis. So sometimes I do need a caregiver myself. I know that it's sometimes hard and that's why caregivers are often very lonely. Because when one person decides to be a caregiver, it's usually a relief for the other people that could get involved.
6: You wrote this book for whom, actually? Who is it targeting?
5: Well, first it's targeting, I would say, public opinion, really, because... Some caregivers don't even know they are caregivers. Um, Well, healthcare professionals are not very good for now at recognizing caregivers and knowing what to do. I can't blame them because I wasn't supposed to write about caregivers for my medical thesis. I was supposed to write about palliative care and I discovered caregivers along the way. It was the first time in my life, in my medical studies, I ever heard the term family caregiver. If I, as a doctor, I never heard about caregivers, how do you expect people to know about them.
6: One of the things, one of the, a big part of what you write about, and it seems like in this movement to, well, recognize caregivers, is recognition. And when we're talking about recognition, say in France, what would that look like?
5: Well, first, that would look like a change of law. That would look like a change of mind in hospitals, but also in companies or at school. Caregivers don't dare to talk about their situation. you have a young caregiver, Maybe like eight or ten. Uh, what What do you mean, an eight-year-old caregiver? Oh, that's a very good question. I, I, before writing that book, I have to admit I did not even know that kids could be caregivers. But an eight-year-old caregiver is a kid that is going to take care, for example, of younger siblings, who is going to go to the pharmacy and get the drugs every day, who is going to clean the house, who is going sometimes to bathe the parent, help the parent stand. It really depends on the disease. You would be surprised to hear the story of those young caregivers. Nobody cares about them. Even doctors, when you're in the room, you're like 10, and you're with your parent and the doctor is telling your mom that she has a cancer, for example. How many doctors are going at the end to stop and you know talk with the kid and say, do you have any questions? I don't know any doctors right now who would do that. We don't ignore them because we want to ignore them. We ignore them because we don't think that they're concerned by the problem.
6: So, so there is a recognition issue, there is just, you know, this exists. Exactly. Um, you're saying a legal recognition is important, what would a legal recognition then bring for these caregivers in France?
5: Well, that would enable the next step of maybe paid leave. And you know, pension rights also during that paid leave, lots of caregivers are women. And usually the paid leaves are taken by women also. So if they have to stop working, that cuts also, you know, the pension rights, increases the gender issue problem. It sounds as though
6: things are changing government is actually considering uh, addressing this issue in a
5: legal framework sometime in the next year or so are you seeing things change uh, I think they're going in the right direction anyway already talking about the topic is a change but I'm afraid they won't go as far as we need because paid leave and right for pension those are tools but they're not a change of mind those tools are needed because caregivers are burned out so talk to them, help them, you know, guide them in the system, uh, help them like see the doctors for their own health. It's not priority for them, and then they get sick. We have to prevent caregivers from becoming themselves patients. That's really something we have power over. We can do a lot for caregivers just by switching our culture and the way we're seeing things and changing a bit our system.
1: So, Sarah-Hélène Rossino seems to be saying that, that we are moving towards getting some kind of paid leave for caregivers. Yeah,
0: and the, the proposal that's being floated around right now is to offer 40 euros a day to these people. So, not much, but it's already something. A beginning. Yeah. The issue, though, of course, is how long. Right now, leave is three months, renewable up to a year, but that's for your whole career. Of course, people with disabilities need more than a year's worth of care, and then as the population ages, this is going to be more and more of an issue.
1: Yeah, it won't just be a French issue, will you, because people are living longer all around the world
0: yeah yeah and this idea of caregivers and the problem of them being invisible work is a worldwide problem it is something she touches on in her book um france though you could imagine could maybe be on the vanguard of recognizing them we have a very good health system we have retirement homes we have a welfare system you know it's a matter of getting everybody organized potentially to support them but as she says the first thing to do is to recognize that the
1: problem exists and it sounds like that's exactly what's happening in france
0: Listen, it happened to me again yesterday. What? Oh, I was called Elsa. Ah. People who don't know me well here, they'll often call me Elsa. My last name is Elsus. And in French, you don't pronounce the last S on words. And I guess if you're grasping in your memory, my name is Elsa.
1: It's strange, though, isn't it, that it's the last name that sticks in people's minds?
0: Yeah, I, I wonder if it's because of the tendency here in France to write out names with the last name or surname first without
1: a comma in between. That can be really confusing. Let's take the example of our dear Prime Minister, Mr. Edouard Philippe, which is the first name, which is the surname. Very confusing. Very confusing.
0: So, one solution that's come up with is writing the surnames in a name in capital letters,
1: all capital. Yeah, which you see very often, don't you, on uh, official forms that the surname is capitalized. Yeah.
0: So, I haven't found anything official that says this is the way to write last names, but it definitely happens on websites, for example, it it converts your name into full capitals. Um, There have been theories, though, that this could be explained by the large number of surnames in France that are also first names, for example, Edouard Philippe, or the most popular last names in France, Martin, Bernard, Robert, Michel, Laurent. These are very popular last names that are also men's first names. I was just
1: going to say all masculine, but anyway, that's another question. (laughs) Well,
0: Edouard Philippe, of course, he could receive mail addressed to Philippe or Edouard. If you didn't know him, you wouldn't know which was his first or his last. But if you capitalise his last name, Philippe, that would help, at least visually.
1: Clearly, you haven't been doing a good enough job, sir, of writing your last name in fully capitalised letters. Right, right. As a name tag tag on my chest or something.
0: <laughs> well, if you do want to write my name, dear listeners, don't hesitate to send us an email. My name is Sarah in lowercase or uppercase, <laughs>
1: we'll still get it.
0: Our email address is
1: spotlight.france at rfi.fr. That's all for this week. If you liked what you heard in this program, please subscribe to the podcast. Just look for Spotlight on France wherever you get your really cool podcasts. We'll be back next week with a new episode. See you then. Bye-bye.